Okay, if you've got your Bibles, you want to turn to the Gospel of Mark, and we've uh, made it as far as chapter 10, uh, where we're going to pick up and carry on from this morning. Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts as we come to God's Word together, shall we? Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. Lord, thank you that it is living and powerful. And thank you, Lord, that it changes us. As we look into it, Lord, as we would look into a mirror, we see ourselves as we truly are. But Lord, your word also provides the, the remedy. Uh, Lord, as it causes us to look to Jesus. And Lord, this morning as we look at these things, as we consider, Lord, more of Mark's account of these things, as he tries to draw our focus upon Jesus, Lord, help us to see our Savior in these things. And Lord, to be challenged and edified to grow. Through your word this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Mark chapter 10. It's uh, one of those chapters that um, if you were preaching in, in a, many churches, it would be awkward to preach on. But because we just teach verse by verse through Scripture, this is what we've got, this is where we are, this is what we're going to look at. Uh, and the first thing we're going to come up against uh, is the subject of divorce. Now, of course, it is for some a painful uh, topic to discuss. It's an awkward topic sometimes. Um, but one of the problems is that most people in the world have no concept of what marriage truly is. Um, and that's one of the problems when we will look at these kind of topics. So we're going to go and look at what Jesus said uh, and see what we can glean from that. And then uh, if uh, time allows, we'll move on to the other things later in the chapter. But we begin by looking at verse 1. It says, And he arose from thence uh, and cometh into the coast of Judea. Now, again, the background. Let's just go right back very quickly. Quick recap. Mark is recording Peter's testimony. Okay, so these are the things that Peter witnessed, Peter saw, uh, and Mark now seemingly is taking notes from Peter, scribbling down in enthusiastic form everything they could find out. Um, we are not sure quite at what, ex- what time in his life Mark first came across Jesus, um, but it was probably quite young. There's a number of illusions where people think it could have been Mark uh, in the, the gospel narratives. Um, but later in uh, life, when he's possibly a late teenager, um, he comes to faith. Uh, and Peter seemingly having a big hand in that. Um, he goes, of course, off with... Um, with Paul and with Barnabas on a first missionary trip, but it kind of halfway through that goes back, can't cope with it, doesn't like it. Um, Paul then won't take him the next time, so he goes off with Barnabas. Um, and it seems to be that in that period of time, he ends up hooking up with Peter again, writes this gospel, because later in Paul's ministry, Paul says, bring Mark, because Mark's really useful to me. And I think the reason for that is by this point, the gospel of Mark was written. We know it was written early, if anybody's any doubt of the time of the writing of the Gospels, uh, you can look at some of the books we've got at the back by Bill Cooper, and he absolutely demolishes the arguments of the critics, showing that the Gospels were written very, very close to the events themselves. And so while he gets this from Peter, it, it, it becomes a great testimony, and I'm sure that Paul was able to use some of the things that Mark had recorded uh, in his witnessing to others as well. And so they've gone on this journey, Mark's been recording all of these things for us, Jesus first of all revealing himself to his disciples and they get finally to the Mount of Transfiguration and they see, or certainly Peter, James and John, see Jesus in his glory. Um, just just veiled in this incredible um, Shekinah glory of God. And then Jesus comes down from the mountain, doesn't stay there, doesn't return from heaven to heaven from that point, but comes back down into the valley where he deals with this demon-possessed individual 
And uh, we've already drawn some lessons from this, how we should be serious. You know, that particular problem couldn't be dealt with other than prayer and fasting. You know, and there's a call to everyone who says they're a believer to be living a life that's dedicated unto God, that's committed to him, so that we're ready for whatever situation arises. You're not going to suddenly be in a situation and then have the opportunity to go away and pray and fast. So we need to be praying and fasting. We need to be keeping God at the center of our hearts and minds so that when we come up against a problem, we instinctively know what to do as Jesus did in those situations. So we saw last week Jesus come down to Peter's house, uh, seemingly in Capernaum, uh, where Peter had lived, and speaking there, talking about the whole issue of greatness, and then we're now going to leave from that point. That's where we're leaving from. He rose from Peter's house where they've been uh, staying, and then we're going to start to make this journey now down towards Jerusalem. Jesus has made it very clear that he's going to Jerusalem to die. The disciples don't get it. They're, they're, they're clearly, as so many in the church do today, thinking this is some kind of allegorical or metaphorical kind of thing and must mean something else. No, no, it meant what Jesus said it meant. He was going to Jerusalem to die, and after three days he said he was going to rise from the dead. That's one of the problems a lot of the uh, the atheists have. You know, this uh, this chap I was speaking to on Friday evening, you know, those who say that, well, Jesus didn't really die on the cross, okay? So how do you explain the fact that for six months prior to his death, he said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die? It, that, that's what he said he was going to do. You know, it wasn't that suddenly all this happened and it was a big surprise. Jesus went intently to Jerusalem knowing that he was going to die. That's a big problem they can't seem to get around. But we read, he comes into the coast of Judea by the farther side of Jordan, and the people resort unto him again. Once again, these crowds have been hearing about Jesus, all the things he'd been doing. And people go to Jesus for different reasons. Some go to Jesus because they think he can solve a particular problem. Maybe it's a health issue, and no doubt many came for that purpose. And we read again that as he was wont, he taught them again. You know, whenever you go to Jesus, and whatever reason being you go to Jesus, whatever your motivation, he'll end up teaching you. And of course, we need to be taught, because the world has so much that it throws at us, so many ideas and philosophies and you know ways of living our lives. But we need all that to be unraveled, and we need Jesus to teach us. He's the one that makes sense of this world for us. Verse 2, and the Pharisees, here they come, not far behind, came to him and asked him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? And we're told, tempting him. Okay, notice that. That's the purpose of their question. They're not really looking for an answer to this question. What they're looking for is a way of trapping Jesus. They recognize that this, even at that time, was a controversial issue. And so they know that whatever Jesus says, or their perception of whatever Jesus is going to say, is going to divide the crowd, and it's going to cause a real problem for Jesus. You see, at that time in this this era, there were two schools of thoughts about divorce. And it really came from the, the ideas being taught by two of the principal rabbi, rabbis of the day. One was a, a rabbi, uh, Hillel, and he had a kind of very lenient and popular view. And then there was the, the school of the rabbi Shemai, and he was a, a much more strict uh, rabbi. And so the, the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The real point 
uh, the, the Pharisees' questions, actually you start to understand if you look at Matthew's account of this. Because there we, we, we see that the question is really, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And that's what they're, they're getting to. Not just is divorce lawful, but can a man put away his wife for any reason whatsoever? Now, that's where this debate centered, because the Mosaic law gave permission for divorce in Deuteronomy 24 verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some uncleanness, that's the key, in her, he writes a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends out of his house. And so the debate was all around what constitutes uncleanness. Now, Rabbi Shemai understood that uncleanness meant sexual immorality. So that was his view. So he was saying that anything other than that is not grounds for divorce. But Rabbi Hillel understood uncleanness to mean any yeah, pretty much anything, whatever, indiscretion, even to the point, believe it or not, of burning the breakfast. That would be apparently, according to him and his school, uh, would be sufficient grounds for divorce. Um, William uh, Barclay uh, described the teaching of uh, Rabbi Hillel on divorce um, by saying this. He said, uh, they said it could mean that if the wife spoiled a dish of food... If she spun clothes, you know, working in the streets. If she talked to a strange man. If she spoke disrespectfully of her husband's relatives in his hearing. If she was a brawling woman, and that's defined as a woman whose voice could be heard in the next house. And he goes on to say that Rabbi Akiba even went to the length of saying that it meant that if a man found a woman who was fairer in his eyes than his wife was. So you've got these two schools that were being argued. One that was saying that pretty much any reason was good enough. And if you wanted, if you just had enough of your wife, that's it. That was good. You could go, you could find yourself a new wife. And then the other school, which was much stricter, that said, no, only if adultery is the issue does it give a man grounds and reason for divorce. So now you get the context of why they were tempting him. Because this was a big controversial issue, and they wanted to trap Jesus by the response that he was going to give. And he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? Now, just again, I've said so many times, but be aware of the details in Scripture. The details are so important, and it's very easy to skip over a lot of the things that we would otherwise not, not see. That's the key. Jesus said, what did Moses command you? You see, the point was that Moses didn't write any commandment saying that a man should divorce his wife, even in certain situations. Okay? We'll come back to that. Verse 4 goes on and says, and, and, and they said, Moses suffered, allowed... Right? To write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. So Jesus said, what is it that the law actually commands you to do? And so they have to come back and say, well, okay, the law doesn't command us to do something. So straight away he's unraveling their arguments. And he says that, well, they, they acknowledge, that Moses said that we could write. He allowed us, he suffered, he permitted us, tolerated us, if you like, to write a bill of divorcement to put her away. So Moses didn't command divorce, Moses permitted it. And of course that goes against the the teaching of Rabbi Hillel. And again he was teaching that if your wife displeased you anyway, 
Um, so the rabbis apparently of that day had a saying that if a man had a bad wife, it was a religious duty to divorce her. And of course, Jesus is tackling that kind of mindset in these things he's responding. Verse 5, And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. Okay, so because of the hardness of not just the, the heart of the uh, the person initiating this, but on both parties, Jesus is, is kind of responding. Uh, David uh, Guzik makes, makes this comment. Uh, he says, It was never commanded by God, but permitted because of the hardness of the offending party in the cruelty of their unfaithfulness to their spouse. It was also permitted because of the hardness of the offended party being unable to perfectly forgive and restore a damaged relationship. The law, of course, in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, was really given as a protection to the divorced wife. Moses permitted divorce, providing a certificate of divorce was given to the wife. And so its primary function was to provide a degree of protection for the woman who'd been uh, repudiated by her husband. So that's a quote from Lane. So you get the kind of the context of which this argument is being uh, presented. But then Jesus kind of twists the argument in a sense, or his response, to get it really back on track from a, a biblical or a godly perspective, because they brought this from a manly, man-made kind of idea of trying to trap Jesus. Or what we've already seen about when we go to Jesus, he teaches us. Whatever our motive, whatever our reason, whenever we come to Jesus, we find that as his way is, Jesus will teach us. So now we see the instruction. And we're told straight away here, but from the beginning of the creation, as the beginning of, of the creation, God made them male and female. Now, first of all, notice what we're told here. When is it that God made Adam and Eve male and female? It's at the beginning. The beginning, I think you'll agree with me, is the beginning. You can't get before the beginning because before the beginning, you don't have anything. There's, the beginning is the beginning, it's the start. My point is that so many people, even in the church, have this mindset because of evolution, because of the things the world has taught, that there were some long periods of time or whatever before we get to Adam and Eve. But this verse on its own tells us that in the beginning, that is when God made the first male, the first female. Exactly what Genesis tells us. It was part of God's work of creation. Of course, the world doesn't understand. They don't get God's plan and God's picture. That God was creating this world ultimately for his son to rule and reign and so on, but also to prepare a bride for himself, for his son, and for Jesus. Down at Creation Fest this year, there was a group who are refer uh, their name if uh, I get this right I think they're called uh, Christians in Science I think that's the the title they go by now a couple of years ago they applied to go down there and have a stand uh, in the exhibition area and uh, the Gracefest team contacted me and a few other people I know and they said do you know do you know anything about them and we said yeah be careful because they are evolutionists they're not although they claim to be Christian um, and so they weren't allowed in. 
However, this year, because of somebody else they knew, they managed to get in through the back door. Uh, now, when they when it was discovered who they were and they got this stand and had some pro-evolution information on there, uh, Brian Broderson went straight up to them and told them they had to leave. Eventually, they reached a compromise that they would remove the evolutionary stuff, but then they would be allowed to stay um, for the festival. They paid their money for the stand and so on. Um, well, sadly, as soon as Brian had left, uh, they put their evolution stuff out. Um, so uh, one of the other directors of Creation Fest came to me and had a chat um, and I then went and had a, a conversation and I was about an hour and a half talking to these individuals um, and I was just asking them some very simple questions because their perception is that God used evolution as a mechanism to get us all here and I was saying, okay, how do you explain Romans 5? Romans 5 makes it very clear that death only came into the world on account of Adam's sin that there was no death before Adam's sin and of course, the idea of evolution is that you have death over millions of years, eventually culminating in the first man, the first woman. It's completely at odds with scripture. And so we had this long conversation, this particular individual I was speaking to, who was uh, apparently a biologist, he spent a while telling me all of his credentials and all the letters he's got after his name, which, to be honest, didn't impress me very much. Um, because uh, he also then said he was a Christian. So I asked him, well, as a Christian then, how do you explain this? Uh, and we also, a little bit later, he asked me a question about, you know, well, I suppose you believe that God created everything in six days, do you? I said, well, let's see what the Bible says. So we went to, Rome, to Exodus 20, verse 11, where it says, as part of the Ten Commandments, that God wrote with his own finger, for in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. I said, well, that's good enough. If God wrote that with his finger, and it's impossible for God to lie, I'll, I'll go with that. And then we got on to the science stuff. And for somebody who was supposed to be a qualified scientist, he didn't understand much of the science either. Uh, and, and there's so many problems when you adopt that particular mindset. No, no, Jesus makes it clear that the beginning, when God was creating the heavens and the earth, that's when he makes man. Now, let me just take you, there's a little bit of a detour, but it might be helpful. Go back to Genesis chapter 1, if you will. Now, again, be bereaned, don't just take what I say, go and check scripture, and today we've got all sorts of wonderful tools that are accessible via the internet to look at the uh, the letters, the wording, and the Hebrew, the Greek, and so on. Of course, the Old Testament here is written in Hebrew. We're told in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, God said, let us make man in our image. A great statement talking about the Trinity there. God's not talking to angels, he's talking to the Trinity, the Trinity in conversation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image. What a privilege that we have been made in the image of God. And in essence, there's a number of ways you can look at this, but we are made up as we are now of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. We've been made in the image of God. If you remember Satan's challenge or request, uh, almost we have in Isaiah 14, he wanted to be like God. Some people think that Satan was trying to get the top job. You know, he wasn't that foolish. He wanted to be like God. Why? Well, because suddenly, day six of creation, God makes man in his own image. No angel, no angelic being had been made in the image of God. Satan, I'm absolutely sure of it, thought this world was being made for him. We've said this before, just like we see with Haman in the book of Esther. And uh, Mordecai, of course, is... The king wants to reward Mordecai for exposing this plot and so on. And Haman steps in one early morning and the king had been up all night. 
reading through the annuals and so on, and read about this plot and thought, nothing has been done to reward Mordecai. So Haman walks in and the king says, what should the king do to the man who he wants to honor? And of course Haman goes, well, who could the king want to honor more than me? So he, he reels off all this stuff that the king should do, where he should put his ring on his finger and his robe and his horse, and somebody should parade him through the street saying, this is what the king does to the man he wants to honor. And the king says, great, what do you need to do for Mordecai? It's one of the most amusing episodes in scripture. So of course, Haman has to do this for this enemy of his, this Jew who he despises. But it's just a a play. It's a real account, no, no question there. But it, it, it's a model of what took place, I believe. The Satan looked at this world and thought, well, who could this be for other than me? He was an anointed cherub. He was in a position of authority. When God was creating the earth, all the angels sang for joy, we're told in the end of the book of Job. The sons of God, they all sang. If all means all, then Satan was one of those that was singing. Praises to God. He hadn't fallen by that point. What leads to Satan's fall is his pride. And so Adam is created in God's image, and that really offends and upsets Satan. And Adam is given dominion over this wonderful earth. It may not seem as wonderful now, and as Adrian was sharing, you know, this country, we look at where we are spiritually, and we've fallen so far from God's standard and God's grace. But even now, even in this country, we see God's blessing. We see some of the wonder. And you've only got to travel even around this country, but people have traveled abroad. You just look at creation. Look at what God has given us. Look at the beauty of the flower. The complexity of, of life is astonishing. And God gave all of that to mankind. But let's go back to verse 26. So God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, he says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, over the cattle over the uh, and over all the earth. See, this is all given to man. And over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created he, him. Okay? Male and female created he. Now, we've translated them, and I've got no problem with that. But if you look, it's exactly the same word as we just had in the previous uh, part of that sentence, which created him. So technically, in the Hebrew, it would read, In the image of God created he him, male and female created he him. And God blessed, same word again, him, and God said unto him, Be fruitful and multiply. Okay, now the idea is that at the beginning, man was made perfect male and female in one. Now that does beg the question, was man then able to reproduce on his own? Well, I would argue, I think possibly yes. But then you see, we get to the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, Adam goes through this object lesson where God brings to him Mr. and Mrs. Rhinoceros and Mr. and Mrs. Hippopotamus, and Mr. and Mrs. Fox, and Cow, and all these animals coming. And Adam's noticing something here, that for every male, there's a female, and realizes he doesn't have a female. He doesn't have a a help me. And so God then puts Adam to sleep, and Eve, of course, is formed out of Adam. God takes the female part out of Adam. And in verse 23 of chapter 2, it says, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is of my body, my substance. She shall be called woman, or 
possibly the way he said it was, whoa, man, no doubt very impressed. She was the most beautiful woman in the whole world. She was, of course, the only woman at that point. But, um, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. We're going to see this come up in a, this, this verse 7. It says here, we're looking on the screen again, back in Mark. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. This is the verse that Jesus is quoting. Now the idea of cleaving comes from an old English term. And it has this idea of breaking apart, but also of joining together. The word can mean both things. It's a, it's a strange word and it's used in various contexts. But in this context, both things apply. Because it is breaking apart from that relationship structure that then existed with a father and a mother. Breaking apart, in a sense, from your independence and all that you've known to that point, And joining together, fusing together effectively in one. That's the biblical idea of marriage. Being literally joined together so much so that to separate will be to break. Again, another quote by David Guzik. He says this, And the two shall become one flesh by bringing the issue back to the foundation of marriage. Jesus made it plain that couples must forsake their singleness. A man shall leave his father and mother and shall come together in one flesh relationship. That is both a fact, they are, and a goal shall become. It's both of that in that idea. John Trapp, um, back in the days of Spurgeon, made this comment. He says, uh, to be glued to her. That's, that was the idea. A husband ought to be as firm to his wife as to himself. See, the idea is that woman was taken out of man, and in marriage, th- that joining back together is literally becoming one unit again. Another quote by a man by Mr. Paul says this, The term Jesus used for joining together is literally yoked together, like two animals yoked together. Couples must work together and head the same way to be really joined uh, the way God wants them to be joined. Here there is a new and overriding unity. The bond between a husband and a wife should be even stronger than the bond between a parent and a child. The marriage bond should be stronger than the blood bond. And the law of God was not that a man should forsake his wife whenever he had mind to. It was but that he should rather forsake his father and mother than leave his wife, loving his wife as his own body. So again, Jesus, quoting, we just seen verse 7, verse 8 goes on and says, And the two, the twain, shall be one flesh, so that they are no more two, but one flesh. So Jesus diffusing this bomb, in a sense, that these Pharisees had come and presented to him, They're trying to trap him. He brings them back to scripture and now teaches them about the real basis, the real foundation of marriage. And then goes on and says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Jesus next reminds the Pharisees that marriage is spiritually binding before God. It's not just a social contract. This isn't just something that's good for society. This is something that God himself ordained. And again, in using the the terms joined together here and asunder or or separate, 
Uh, Jesus reminds us that divorce is really like an amputation in that sense, that sometimes the most extreme circumstances, an amputation may be the right thing to do. But the patient must first have a diagnosis worthy of such an extreme solution. That's the way we should think of divorce or separating from a spouse. It is like an amputation because you are removing part of yourself. The world has no concept of this. And so they, of course, we we see celebrities. They they get married and then within a month or two, they decide they're going to get divorced again. They have no understanding of God's basis, of God's framework, of the way this relationship really should work. So that brings to an end that kind of conversation. But we read in verse 10, in the house, his disciples asked him again of the same matter. So there's still questions that they wanted to put before Jesus. And he said unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another commits adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she commits adultery. Again, we can understand this passage by taking into account the whole counsel of God. You know, again, looking at Matthew's rendering, uh, he said, And I say unto you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Uh, you know, and Jesus, therefore, with that response to the disciples, uh, actually shows that, that the, the, the school of thought that was only allowing divorce in the case of sexual immorality was the one that was the biblical position. Another quote from David Guzik, he says this, uh, the ancient Greek word for sexual immorality is pornea. I'm sure you're familiar with words that we derive from that today. Uh, but it is a broad word that covers a wide span of sexual impropriety. One may be guilty of pornea without actually having consummated an act of adultery. Uh, it says to this, uh, sorry, to this permission for divorce, Paul then also adds the case of abandonment by, abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. That's in 1 Corinthians 7.15, that if one part of a marriage becomes a believer and the other half is uh, unbelieving, Paul also cites that as potentially grounds where a divorce may be the necessary option. Okay, think of it again as amputation, but in some cases, if the husband will not respond to the gospel, it may be causing so much tension, it may be causing so many problems that it becomes the right solution. But I was um, at Croatia Fest, David, um, Dave Shirley, who's the head of the Bible College at uh, Carroll Chapel in Murrieta, was teaching on the passage in Matthew. In fact, Matthew, uh, the teaching on the Beatitudes, but he was, he was talking about this issue. And he said in his early days as a pastor, uh, somebody had come to him, a lady who said that her husband, uh, they'd fallen in love and everything was wonderful, but then very shortly into the marriage uh, she realized that her husband was committing adultery. And so she'd gone to uh, Dave Shirley and said, yeah, what do you suggest I do? And so from the scriptural basis, he said, well, you, you have grounds for divorce from a biblical basis, you know, and maybe that's the right thing to do. But he said this woman didn't do it. She went home and she prayed for her husband. She carried on loving her husband, and he carried on having affairs with various people over a number of years. Didn't want to know anything about the gospel, anything about Jesus. 
And a number of times the conversation came up and again Dave Shirley said, you know, I really think you're probably better without him. But she didn't. She just kept praying and praying year after year after year. Suffering, hurt and humiliation, she would not give up. And I believe, I, I'm not sure I was, the audios aren't yet online from Creation Fest for the teaching this year, they will be soon, but I think it was after about 14 years of enduring this, her husband came to the Lord. And she was, he was sharing that her husband is just so in love with his wife now. He's repented of all the things he's done, but recognizes his own salvation was because of those prayers of his wife who would just not give up. That really encapsulates the whole idea of marriage, being joined together. You know, and whilst one partner may do something that sometimes is hard to accept or to deal with, you're, you're one in the Lord if you've got married. Now, I'm not passing judgment on people who have gone through divorce because... Every situation is different, and Scripture allows for that possibility. But what I am trying to do this morning is show you the way God intended it to be. I like this quote also by David Guzik. He says this, This means that as God looks down from heaven, he does not have three categories, single, married, and divorced. He has two categories, single, and married. You're either bound under a marriage vow or you're not. If you are bound, you can't marry another. If you're not bound, you are free to marry in the Lord. And he says, understanding the whole counsel of God on this subject frees people from the stigma of divorced in the church. You know, it is a big subject and I'm aware that for some it is painful. But you know, God's plan, God's purpose in marriage is so wonderful. But there's something even bigger. Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians. Because as you read through Scripture, you begin to recognize that God deals with models, similitudes. In fact, is exactly what he says to, I believe, is it Micah? Or Hosea, one of the prophets, one of the minor prophets. God speaks in similitudes. He uses models, examples that we can learn by. The example earlier I was speaking of from the book of Esther is an example. And there's so many other models that say that the Lord gives us to explain his plan and purpose. Well, marriage is a model. You see, the reason God did what he did with Adam and Eve was to give us something that we can learn by. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. In fact, let me just pick up verse 24. It says, Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, some people today go, well, that's a very sexist kind of view and so on. And that's because, again, they have no context. Because before this, we're actually told we should submit to each other in the Lord. You know, verse 21 of the chapter says that we should be submitting as a body of believers to each other. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord. 
It says, the husband is the head of the wife, is also Christ is the head of the church. The idea of submitting is getting under each other's vision, is supporting each other. It doesn't have the context that we have in our minds today of being submissive. That's a very different thing. Now this is talking about submitting, getting under, supporting each other. Verse 25 then says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. Straight away we've got a, a, a parallel, a model that's being presented. Husbands are to love their wives. And the, the blueprint we have for that is the way that Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Well, Christ loved the church by entering into our world and dying for us. That's what a husband should do for his wife. Should enter into her world. Leaving behind all of the things he wanted. Enter into her world. The problem we have so often today is the husbands enter into marriage wanting to bring all of their world and get their wife just to accept everything without wanting to show that love. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. You know, there is no woman that would have a problem submitting, getting under her husband's mission if he loved her like that. Unconditionally, giving himself completely for her. But notice that this is talking of Christ, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Then he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that should be holy and without blemish. You know, there's a, a ritual bath known as the mikveh um, that Jewish couples or the Jewish bride uh, would particularly go through before her wedding day. And they have this, this bath and they normally are accompanied by a chaperone. And the idea is that they are ritually cleansed of any impurity or anything. They take off nail polish and jewelry and all those kind of things. And the idea is ritually cleansing yourself, getting ready for your wedding day. Well, that's what we're to be doing. And we're to do it through the washing of water by the word. That we are to be getting ready for our wedding day. Getting rid of all the things of the world, all those impurities, all those things that come into our hearts and lives and minds. Those things are to be cleansed and got rid of we're getting ready for our wedding day so all men verse 28 to love their wives as their own bodies he that loves his wife loves himself because in marriage that's how it is it is as your own body because you are joined together in one and then paul says for no man yet ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it even as the lord the church yeah, I mean, people may say, you know, I, I don't, you know, care about myself, you know, uh, you know. But I guarantee, you, if we took a picture this morning and then we kind of put it up on the website, you'll be going. The first person you're looking for is yourself. So make sure you look okay. Now he goes on and says, if "We are members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones." He's saying how we, as the church, have been joined to Christ. That we're now part of his body. We've been brought in. And it says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined, cleaved to his wife, and they shall be, the two shall be one flesh. And in verse 32, This is a great mystery. Paul speaks of at least nine mysteries. Some will count twelve depending on how you count them. But at least nine mysteries. Things that seemingly he received when he was called up to the third heaven. Things that he says, well, inexpressible to really to, to put into words, but he does his best with some of these things. 
And one of the mysteries, things that was, that was hidden before, but now he's revealing is this. This great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The whole basis of marriage, guess what? It's not for you and I. It's for Jesus. It's because of this relationship that he is having, he has with us, that we are to be as his bride and we will be joined to him. And it's just the way that a, a human bride and a groom are joined together and they become, as it were, one flesh. That's how we're going to be joined to Christ. That's incredible. That's amazing to think that our creator, the one who sustains all things, loves us so much that not only he entered into our world to die for us, but that he's going to join us to himself in this incredible way. And we're already spoken of as being part of his body. What a privilege we have. Okay, it's a great place to stop because then we change theme and then we get on to talking about children and so on. So we'll pick up from there next week. Let's bow our hearts. Father God, we do just thank you for your incredible love for us. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus. Thank you that we have been given this incredible privilege of being part of your bride, the bride of Christ. Lord, help us to understand this privilege we've been given. And Father, help us to see the connection with what you have ordained marriage to be. Father, we pray this morning for every marriage represented in this congregation. The Lord, you would watch over and you would protect. Father, you would keep from our hearts and minds the lies and the deception of this world. The Father, we wouldn't be drawn after things in this world, but Father, we would love our spouses. The Father, we would care for them. We would do everything for them, recognizing that we are one body. Father, we pray too this morning for those that are yet to find a help meet suitable to them. The Lord, in your timing, if it is your will, that you would find the right person for them. But Father, in the meantime, that you would give them patience, or give them the strength, and to use, Lord, every moment for you. Lord, as Paul said, let those who are married be as though those who are single in serving you in these days. For all of us, Lord, may we be looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. For it's in his name we ask these things this morning. Amen.